0: Welcome to Hard Mode. This startup caper is hard work. The startup found reality is problem solving at its most extreme. A series of U-turns, struggles, setbacks, and adjustments on the path to creating tech-enabled businesses that customers and users love. Join us on this storytelling series with a roll call of technology company founders, investors, operators, and outliers as they share anecdotes of the journey towards sustainable growth hosted and curated by the team at Tractor Ventures.
1: Welcome to Hard Mode.
0: Hard Mode. Hard Mode.
2: Welcome to Hard Mode with Joshua Williams, founder and CEO of CardLux. CardLux is on a mission to shape the future of retail marketing. They empower local area marketers to run digital campaigns in the most time-efficient, cost-efficient, and brand-compliant fashion possible, and have found particular product market fit within the automotive industry. Discussed in this episode is solving niche problems, pivoting from a good business model to embrace risk, transitioning to a global tech company, Josh's permanent move from California to Australia and more. Great chat. This episode is hosted by Tractor Ventures entrepreneur in residence, Noga Edelstein. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to Hard Mode. Really happy to have you here today, Josh, founder of Cartlux.
2: Thanks for
0: having me, Noga. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to our chat.
1: Yeah, me too. Uh, Well, let's kick off. Can you tell us a little bit about Cartlux? What do you guys do?
0: So Cartlux is a centralized retail platform. Um, We were born out of retail insights across financial services, automotive, um, tech, telco, etc. And we effectively offer a centralized solution for national sales companies to optimize and automate the digital marketing of their retail networks in any given country, and it's a global global play.
1: Okay, that's a really specific problem that you're trying to solve there. Can you tell us a little bit um, how you came to build this company? Like what's your backstory?
0: So my backstory is um, I, I originally launched Cartlux as a digital video agency. My background's always been filmmaking and, and advertising my entire career. With Cartlocks, when it was originally founded, our mission was to connect people with the product services, information and entertainment they were searching for, leveraging the power of the motion picture online. So it was a digital video play and we were very early to the piece in online video, specifically to drive commercial outcomes. And originally we were creating bespoke content strategies combined with bespoke digital media targeting and, and just getting wildly successful results. As we got deeper into the journey, we started to see a lot of patterns, um, a lot of repetition in the requests. And, and I kind of quickly realized that there was a, a way that we could build a platform that would automate almost 100% of what we were doing and allow us to build a really big business across industries with global scale. And, and that's how the company was born.
1: Yeah, right. And so that's really interesting how you noticed the patterns in how people were using it. What was the turning point for you in saying, right, we're going to make this pivot?
0: The turning point was, was when we, we won a global contract with Google, with their automotive team. And we started creating a, a video content series for automotive dealers in Google's top 20 countries around the world. Um, And the the mission of that video series was to educate dealers around digital, um, specifically, you know, what's the automotive path to purchase, how does search work, like really basic digital concepts that maybe smaller advertisers uh, might not understand. And in automotive, it was a unique scenario because there's a a high turnover of, of sales staff and sometimes marketing staff. And that education piece can be quite laborious. So that was... The flash moment for me i was like what if we could build a platform where a dealer regardless of their digital literacy could could advertise one of their service offers or, or models in less than 60 seconds that was when i got the vision for it because then it, it would eliminate the need for For the dealers to to know a vast amount of information from the ever changing digital landscape. And we could actually bake that into the platform. So it's constantly best practice and allow the dealers to simply focus on what they do best, which is meeting people in the physical world and delivering vehicles. And that was the moment that the the platform came to mind.
1: So it was really a contract that you won in the automotive space that took you down that path because now you guys really do have a niche in, in automotive, right?
0: Correct. I guess, yeah, we, we've really had a deep global dive on, on the problem that we're solving and we had the luxury of seeing it from all angles, from the national sales company angle, from the digital media company angle, from the retail angle. And it allowed us to inform the technology in, in a really powerful way, not just from one market, but across 20 markets.
1: So what did that look like in reality, Josh? You were building one type of business, then you win this contract with Google and you see this big opportunity over here. Do you like flick a switch and transform the business? Do you, <laughs> you know, hedge your bets and do a bit of both? Like what, what does that look like for people that are thinking of a pivot? Like how does that work in reality? Oh,
0: wow. That's a great question. <laughs> and <laughs> I'd say, um, oh, how do I explain that one? I, I knew I needed to do it. So my conviction was 110%. It was just something I had to do. Now, keep in mind at the time we were a digital video agency, so we didn't have any engineers as as such. And and the first step was I need to build this. I need to work with a team that can build an MVP effectively. So we took existing money that we had and started building the MVP and to be honest, it was quite a shock for, for some in the culture or in the company, because our culture was very much filmmakers, right? Video, video editing, directing, producing, et cetera. And now all of a sudden it's like, Hey, we're, we're going in this direction. So it was gradual first because we needed to build the MVP. So I just, I just took action, started building it, brought some engineers in. And then from there, when we presented it to our first client, uh, which was BMW group in Australia. They absolutely loved it and pretty much immediately we knew we were on the money with with the direction that we were heading. And I had to make a conscious decision to cease the kind of manual services aspect of the business and that was the hardest part because we had a very great business running. But in my view and experience any success, any great success takes a singularity of focus and trying to run the two was just, at the size we were at, was just too much. So I had to consciously shut down uh, a good business to go all in on the global play.
1: Yeah that that is such a hard call to make and such a brave thing to do and and you're right you can't focus on too many things you have to do one thing well but it is a challenge when you're pivoting especially from agency to product because the agency makes so much money normally <laughs> and the product yeah. is new um so Absolutely. how did you how did you think about the funding side of it did were you able to continue to self fund did you need to think about raising money for the product
0: so Initially, it was self-funded to get the MVP going. And then through connections in the industry, um, basically brought in our first outside capital for the tech just through some high net worths and took a, a small amount of um, additional funds in. Um, and that was basically setting up the push to get the MVP to product market fit. Um, so yeah we took the additional capital on and just started really pushing hard to get the uh, additional traction and so as part of the uh, as part of the journey you know BMW Group Australia loved it we wanted to push for a global deal we, we flew to Munich met with uh, executives there they loved it as well and then we came back and the pilot was wildly successful um, with BMW Group here in Australia, they quickly expanded to New Zealand and then we started picking up additional big clients as well off the back of that.
1: Okay, that's awesome. Josh, if we can just go back in time a little, you obviously have an accent. You Did you grow up in the US?
0: Yeah, so I'm from Southern California. My family's well, six generations from Los Angeles. So I grew up there and went to university in San Diego and, yeah, spent most of my childhood and, and early adult years living in Southern California, which was amazing.
1: Um, and what prompted the move to Australia?
0: So I was, I was really lucky when when I was a young filmmaker. So I was studying film in university and, and I had a real passion for surfing. And I combined the two elements and started making surfing films. And as part of that, um, there was a lot of international travel involved so I ended up doing a few world tours and Australia was always a top destination. And, and my first trip to Australia, I, I was blown away coming from Southern California, where there's 30 million people in the same area, Southeast <laughs> Queensland. <laughs> the access to uh, to open beaches without many people just ticked all the boxes for me as a lifelong surfer. And when I first came back from Australia, I told my mom, I'm living in Australia. That's where I'm going to be. So
1: that was, that was how that happened. <laughs> um. And so, do you, tell me about your family—six generations Southern Californian. Is there entrepreneurial blood there? I'm interested to learn how a surf make surfing filmmaker <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> t- turns into a you know a an entrepreneur living in Australia.
0: Yeah, I guess. I guess it's a combination of culture there, right? If you're in California, it's filmmaking, it's, it's tech, it's, it's a general mindset of entrepreneurship there. And so like in my family, yeah, my, my mother was, was started her own construction company, commercial construction company, which was, I was always wildly impressed by, especially as a young kid in a male dominated industry. She was a very strong woman and, and building huge commercial Projects which I thought was incredible. She's by far my my biggest inspiration. And then um, one of my uncles, he was a Las Vegas show producer. Amazing stories there. Very, very colorful colorful character, Uncle Marty. Um, Yeah, he he produced um, a a really famous show in in Vegas for, for many years. So, you know, that was another element of entrepreneurship. And then one of my cousins done really well in tech as well. Um, saw a few of his companies and he's based in in Europe so yeah there's definitely been a quite a long string of entrepreneurs in the family as well
1: yeah I I think they often is because I think as you say having that inspiration and that conviction that you can start something and seeing what that looks like and what that lifestyle looks like seems to be a really influential factor I think
0: yeah Um, definitely and like for me it wasn't it wasn't anything I really thought about to be honest. I, I just I just started pursuing things that that I was extremely passionate about and and've kind of always done that, where I've got conviction and and it's what I want to do. And then from there, I, I tend to see further opportunities. So it's never been, hey, I want like I'm consciously deciding to be an entrepreneur. It's more of it's just been the way that it's been.
1: And so what was the transition point from saying, you know, I'm no longer gonna make films and I'm gonna turn this into a business.
0: I guess that I wanted to get something that could have global scale. And it, I guess it was more of the evolution of my career. I've always been a creative. And to me, you know, creatively directing an art piece or, or a film is, is an amazing endeavor. And I was quite fortunate to, to do that for, for a while. But then going into building and creating a global technology company, to me, it's, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of the same skill set and creativity and, and passion and, and drive allows you to be successful in that tech space as well. So yeah, I think um, it was really just wanting to go to the next evolution, I guess, of, of my career to figure out what, what else I could tap into. And it's, I've been loving it.
1: Well, what have been some of the hardest things for you, Josh? So if we st- st- do this in two parts, so the hardest yeah. thing about that transition, just starting a company, going from filmmaker to a business person, and then yeah. we'll come back to today and, and what are some of the harder things about scaling a company. But if, if we start with that transition piece, you know, what were some of the really challenging times?
0: So filmmaker to business person, if you look at filmmaking, So I I mentioned my mother, she was in construction, and she was always pushing me to, to go in that direction. But I was really passionate about filmmaking. And it was it was actually kind of ironic, because once I got into larger scale film production, the fundamentals are the same as as a large-scale construction project, really. It's, it's very similar. So in a way, filmmaking, I, I was getting into the business end of filmmaking and, and learning a lot because you have to run crews of people, you've got budgets and deadlines and a lot of pressure to, to perform. So I really think that was the best training possible for, for what I'm doing now. Um, and I guess the hardest part, the hardest transition was um, – I think that tipping point that I mentioned earlier where I just went all in on the global tech play and shut down what was a great business, a, a good business. And that took so much discipline that I didn't even know I had it but but I, I just knew I had to do it. And it was, it was so risky, like in hindsight, um, it, it was very risky, but I, I had to do it. And thankfully um, it, was the right, it was the right choice.
1: Yeah, I think I saw something on your Twitter feed actually about one of the hardest things about entrepreneurship is when just knowing that you've got the conviction that you have to do something and how hard it's going to be, but just doing it anyway.
0: Yeah, that that discipline, I think, it's very rare. I think in in to find in in people, and it's scary um, because the reality of it is, as everyone knows, like there's a lot of a high percentage chance of, of failure, but. Uh, for me, I ne- it's it's not anything that I ever think about. I, I literally never think about um, or dwell on, on that at all. I'm just figuring out all the ways that it can work and and trying 24-7 to, to figure out anything that's going to screw it up and, and trying to de-risk constantly. It's a daily – that's the daily process for me.
1: Risk <laughs> <Next> manager. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: So then fast forward to today, you know, you've successfully – built two businesses now, your agency and now CarLux as a global tech platform. Um, You've reached product market fit. You're in the process of scaling. What are the hardest things about being in that space, that scale-up phase?
0: Uh, That's another good question. I think the, the landscape has changed so dramatically in the last three years, as we all know. I feel like that creativity has come into play even more so. Like it, We're doing business in ways that have, it's never been done before. We're scaling. Actually, the, the pandemic really helped us in a lot of ways as far as um, bringing efficiencies into hiring, into tapping into a global talent pool. Um, eliminating travel costs for a couple of years was huge for us to be during that time. We, it made all of the difference because before we all know the world, the way it used to be was you had to show up everywhere all the time. And now we were able to achieve some stunning growth rates without doing that. So I think that the challenge going into this next phase is, is really, um, uh, figuring out what that next working model is going to be. And I think it's going to go back to how it used to be, but not all the way. I, I think the split's going to end up being like, for us anyways, we'll work from anywhere. That's our, our culture and our policy. But we, I think we'll start to introduce a lot more physical connectivity back into the mix at maybe a an 80-20 kind of split between digital to physical connectivity. Mm. And that'll be the next, um, I guess the next challenge is getting that, that mixed right.
1: So, tell us a bit about your team. Then, where, how many in the team, and where are you all located?
0: So, there's about twenty of us in the team right now, and we're all over the world. So, we have people in India, we have people in Thailand, Philippines, all over Australia, um, Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, and what else am I missing? I think that's hey, the. Uh, and a few
1: time in, zones there.
0: Yeah, and in the US, <laughs> and it, it's it's. It's wild how global it is for such a small team. Like, there was a point there where I don't think there was almost one person in every country, <laughs> which was funny. Um, but yeah, we're pretty spread out.
1: And what's the mix of roles? Are you heavy on tech, or what's the split?
0: So the split is, I guess, we're, we're probably a little more heavy on sales and customer support, and then, um, and then. Engineering and product, and then um, a little bit later on on the uh, just uh, SGNA stuff.
1: Okay. Can you give me a sense of the scale that you're at right now, Josh? So I know you've just had a really successful trial with Renault, and there were some great stats um, shared there around the success of the platform. So you, you know you're, you're pretty well global. Can you give us just a bit of a sense of you know number of customers, where you're operating? Um, A bit about the platform today.
0: Yeah, so we've picked up five new countries in the last four months. We seem to be adding countries monthly and that growth is accelerating. We're in a total of 12 countries now. Um, We're working with some of the world's biggest, biggest automotive brands. So we've got Ford, Toyota, Nissan, BMW Group, Renault. Um, We just signed up Aston Martin. They just went live in the UK last month. And we're also working with MG, which is a really rapidly growing brand. And we're multiple markets with them now as well.
1: So you said earlier around having, you know, focus and doing one thing really well, that auto sector seems to be playing extremely well for your platform. Is that where you'll be staying? um, Or are you going to be looking at other sectors? How do you think about that as the brand grows?
0: Yeah, so, so automotive, the way that we think about the business and having worked across so many different retail and franchise model businesses, automotive retail is the most complex retail environment. You've got financial services, you have after sales, you have new car, you have used car, multi-location. A lot of the retail groups are multi-brand. So the technology that we've built services that industry very well. We'll be focused on continuing to be the global leader in, in our space for automotive and, and for centralized retail programs and auto the other industries that we're actually getting pulled into the the technology is a is a more stripped back version of what we've already built so um, there's there's some key industries like financial services real estate um tech telco and other retail uh opportunities that we're, we're getting kind of pulled into through Discussions with some of our channel partners, like like Google and um, those uh, those other businesses, we're kind of focusing the other industries right now. About ten percent of our time on. Okay. Uh, so auto is absolutely our our focus, but also too we are investing in in a bit more R and D and um, go to market stuff in, in some of those other industries because um, the opportunities is vast.
1: So how does funding play into that? You're scaling up, you're looking at new sectors, new markets. Um, you've taken some funding from Tractor. Are you, you know, tell us how you thought about that and then how you think about sort of funding as you continue to grow. I love Tractor
0: funding. <laughs> there, oh, we love you
1: too.
0: <laughs> so honestly, um, like being in the space and and looking for funding, as we all know, for founders can be wildly difficult and the market for debt, you know, if you're talking to a bank, it's a non-starter. If you're a tech startup, it's just not, it's not possible. Um, there's other, you know, there's other people trying to play in the space. Obviously the U S is a different market, but in Australia, um, having the ability to work with a company like Tractor, which there's only one, um, to extend runway, to to really leverage for, for an enterprise SaaS business, is it's a no-brainer. Um, so I'd say that first and foremost. And then that opens up doors into the equity side of things um, because if you're growing in a healthy way and have the discipline that we've had to have, we, we never did a huge round before the pandemic. So we haven't been a part of, of the way the markets have been, have been uh, changing over the last twelve months, we've had huge amounts of discipline in the business, which which allows us to kind of control our, our destiny in a way. And com- combining um, attractive funding, now with some additional equity for us is is putting us in a really strong position for growth. So, we're in the process of of finalizing another round at the moment, hoping to get it finalized before Christmas. And then that'll set us up for the next few years and to hit those next stage milestones.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. That's great Um, to hear your endorsement of Tractor. I think it makes so much sense, um, firstly, from a non-dilutive perspective, but also to accelerate growth and put yourself in a position of being able to be sustainable before you go out and do that equity round. I think especially the way the markets are today, um, that just gives you lots of optionality. So I think that's really wise. Um, if we can think for a moment back to some of the tough times again, Josh, so, you know, this podcast is called hard mode. What, what was hard mode for you? Um, and, and how did you overcome it?
0: Uh, I'm still dealing with the PTSD from it <laughs> all. <laughs> might be too soon, Naga. This. It might be too soon. <laughs> Jeez, where do I start? Uh, so, I guess I'll start from the biggest kind of jump off the cliff moment and build the airplane on the way down, which was uh, going into the global tech play and, and turning off the, the other business. So the hardest part of that was the pressure that you have to create something out of nothing before you run out of money. That's, uh, that's intense. Yeah. And that takes a toll. And I think it's a very unsustainable and unhealthy toll that it takes, um, to be honest. I, I I don't think you can do that for a very long amount of time like anything more than 12 months is is intense so that that period was extremely intense and what was even what made it even harder is you when you're coming into enterprise sales as a lot of people may may or may not know enterprise sales cycles cycles are six to 18 months so As a startup, you know, and getting your first logo acquisitions, you're you're scrambling, and every email is like a roller coaster (laughs) because you're getting your first uh, your first traction, right? And big corporates, they'll never move as fast as a startup. So I think the hardest part was kind of that conflict between the size and business cadence of enterprise conflicting with the size and business case cadence of a startup that needs to survive. Right. That's, that's a year old, that's wildly difficult. Um, and then if you throw a pandemic on top of that, then it really gets hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, the (laughs) auto market's taking a real battering, Uh, Yeah, especially in Australia with the supply chain and all of the other issues.
0: So, so that was, I guess, just scratching the surface of some of the difficulties, um, as a founder that, where conviction is inherent, it's also critical that you're able to communicate and ensure that the rest of your team has conviction as well. I'd say it might be impossible to get it, them to have as much conviction as as you will as a founder, but if you can get them close, as close as possible, that's also a really, uh, can be a very difficult thing. and what I guess what helps solve that is is through your hiring, right? If you can hire the right people, that that job becomes a lot easier. And you know, understanding reasons for why people are doing things, where they're at in their career journey, how can you can kind of help them grow their careers? Um, that's also an art. It's a really a really hard thing to get right. Um, we we're fortunate to get an amazing team, and we didn't have to leave anyone in during the pandemic which was incredible mm. um, so yeah that was very fortunate
1: so with such a distributed team how do you bring everyone along for the journey how do you create that culture and that conviction um, when you're you know got people different time zones different countries different you know roles how, how do you approach that
0: I'd say it I'd say it varies by, uh, by role and by, I guess, team within the company. Um, but one of the catalyzing, there's a few. It, I think in general it's about validation, right? In that early stage. And that's across every aspect of the business. People, in order to have conviction, they need validation. And validation is the game in zero to one because nobody knows you. They don't know anything. You're trying to build a brand, you, you know, they don't know if you're gonna deliver what you say you're gonna deliver, the list goes on and on. So one of the things we were able to do, we were very lucky with, with the legacy relationship that we had in place with the Google team um, that brought a lot of validation, right? When we're having, when we're having, you know, one of the b- biggest and best companies in the world along as a partner and having constant meetings and then them saying how incredible our product was, that energizes the team straight away. So you, So that's kind of one layer. The next layer that was really helpful is our hiring strategy. we are bringing in really key executives out of the automotive industry that understand the problem that we're solving. So that was another huge validation point. Um, you know, we were able to bring in rope cello, who's been the managing director of of Toyota, of Kia, a very well-known and respected operator in, in the global auto industry. Having him join was a huge catalyzing moment. Um, Patrick Doble, who was working out and running Starcom China, running the BMW account, very um, long and successful career in, in media. And the big end of, of media was validating. We got Christine Harder, who is the global head of media for Audi in Munich. And, and all of them basically coming in and saying, we know this problem. We've seen this problem for decades. And this solution is, is the future and then to get called the future of, of automotive retail or future of retail by Google, it's just those, those kind of validation points, I think, allow people to believe like, right, this is, this is, um, this is right I want to be on. And that's all the high-level stuff before you get into what the product actually delivers for, for our customers, for, for dealers and for the national sales company. It's, it's 10x better than, than anything that they're doing now.
1: So that's amazing. You've been able to attract such you know, high caliber talent with deep domain expertise in those industries. How have you approached the product build side? You're not a, a coder, a developer. How have you attracted the talent on the product side? Um, and yeah, tell us a little bit about that because I think that's a, a challenge for many founders that don't um, come from technical backgrounds themselves. How do they kind of get a product up and running and then scale it?
0: So the the way that I guess we we recruited in that space was was in line with with one of our main values, which is passion. And the the team that we have as far as engineering goes, they're wildly passionate individuals in in their respective craft. And we were lucky enough to get some really key hires early on that have just been incredible. Um, so we have good product managers. Um, we've had good engineers. We've had, you know, Luke Beals, one of our, one of our system architects, like these, our team is, is just 110% in on the product. And I think for them as well, to be able to, to realize that they're delivering such an incredible product for, for some of the biggest companies in the world, is a, it's a huge career accomplishment what what they're delivering to these end customers. So, I think that that's energizing, right? And and now we're hitting this growth acceleration, and and they get to you know reap the rewards of all of that. It's a it's a feedback loop that um, makes it a great place to work.
1: Mm, sounds like you've built a great culture.
0: Thanks. Yeah.
1: Um can I dig a little on what you mentioned earlier around the enterprise sales cycles so do you have any tips for navigating um, selling to enterprise? you know how do you find that champion within the business any any cheats or tips you can share <laughs>
0: <laughs> That is a yeah there's there's a book there I'm sure there's a <laughs> A lot of information. So I guess it depends on where you're starting from, but I guess we've been talking about the zero to one kind of, how do you get your first enterprise customer? I would say strategically, I would probably look, I would probably run the process in tandem and I would try and find an enterprise, like find a a partner that can validate your business that's symbiotic that you could sell in to sell in with simultaneously is going to direct because then you're gonna have two shots on goals. But more importantly, if you can get that, that channel partner, you're gonna have some form of validation going into the enterprise conversation. So that's option A. Option B, or another layer underneath that would be in any given industry, there's always incumbents that have their large percentage market share they tend to be uh, less agile than challenger brands. We've found wild success in in getting challenger brands because they're hungry and they're looking for market share to test and trial innovation in a more timely manner than incumbents. And that's just a broad stroke learning from, from doing it. So it's not to say that the incumbents won't, won't work but the incumbents tend especially if you don't have any runs on the board they tend to be a much longer process they're just you know a lot of times they're larger there's just a lot more legacy a lot more layers
1: yeah. And there's also that wisdom around, you know, don't necessarily go for your dream customer first, I suppose, because you don't want to yeah. be testing on them, right?
0: <laughs> well, And that's probably, yeah, that's a great point. And that's the third layer. Like if you don't have any runs on the board, you want to refine things. You want to have smaller bets or smaller projects to really prove things out, work out the kinks, um, build the relationships, build a product. So yeah, that's another really good point um, as far as going with with challenger brands and it, you, you don't always have to jump into the deep end as well like you can make your your trials um bite-sized because yeah it can take an army to to sign up an enterprise contract so if you can if you, if you can break that down into the smallest kind of deliverable possible where you're actually engaged then you're away and i think yeah, engagements the currency. As long as you've got that, you, you can make it workable.
1: And how do you think about monetizing with a trial? Like, is that around revenue generation? You know, do you do free trials? Like, what's the motivation and and the economics of that?
0: That's another really good question. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we've we've played a, around a lot with with that. Um, I think an enterprise, you need. In a best case, you need the stakeholder to be paying for something. And the reason why is if it is free, the engagement tends to be very low because there's no real, I think in a, in a big corporate, there's no real, uh, pressure on anyone to make it succeed if nobody's paying for anything. So I'm not saying don't do it. Sometimes, you know, you've got to bake that in, into the plan, but even if it's a small amount of money, it's very important to get some level of commitment out of out of the client because then you've got buy-in to roll out a bigger program. Whereas if it's free, you tend to lose engagement. That's that's been our experience yeah. in, in any case.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's good advice. Josh, what have you enjoyed the most about building this brand? What's been, you know, the best bit?
0: survival (laughs) 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 yeah every day that I wake up and I get to work on this is it's it's hard as it may be it's a dream I absolutely love it beyond words the worst the bad the ugly all of it I love it
1: Uh, the roller coaster yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) yeah has there been like a particular moment that you would call a bit of a pinch me moment where you went wow like this is a real win this is working like can you think of a particular moment for you?
0: It feels like daily recently. (laughs) Um, Honestly, with the way that the business is accelerating, it it, it does feel like that. I'd say um, looking back over the last few years, there's been so many, like it's like the steps, right? It's getting the first having the first meeting and having a client tell you that it's amazing and mm-hmm. you know that validation even before revenue is is a pinch me moment then them going live and and it's working another pinch me moment then they add another country and then you know having incredible partners like we do that are incredible global relationships and being able to innovate with such large incredible companies that's a, a pinch me moment that's happening every day and and our logo acquisition over the last 24 months has been it, it's a little bit surreal to to consider where we started from
1: that's um, yeah that, i love yeah. that every day there's something isn't it but um those are great kind of pinpoint moments along the journey um that you've highlighted
0: yeah it's it's funny it's like it's it's never not top of mind for me on a daily basis i'm like i'm constantly amazed
1: living in the moment yeah it's good so Josh, what's coming up next? What's the, um, what's the trajectory for Cardlux?
0: So the trajectory is we'll continue to build out our automotive product roadmap and continue growing with our existing clients and, and a huge pipeline of new clients that are, that are coming on board. Um, there's a lot of, of smarts that we're building in um, to deliver even more value to, to both the retail networks, financial services teams, after sales teams, and the global brands. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, We have some huge opportunities uh, horizontally. So um, some of the OEMs might, you know, offer um, two wheel, they offer, you know, we're getting requests from tractor companies, like uh, all kinds of different horizontal opportunities where Mm. our tech plays into. So it's really going to be continuing to be that global leader for what we're doing in auto and then building out these other industry capabilities over the next 36 months.
1: Sounds exciting times. And if there's anything that um, our audience can do to help you, Josh, is there anything, any asks you'd like to put out there?
0: Anything to help? I guess if, if you are in the retail space at all, have a look, um, check out our website and reach out. We'd love to have a chat, even if you're in an industry that you think maybe we haven't worked in. That's kind of the fun stuff for us is, is that agile problem solving in other industries. So, and we love the, the brands that are looking to innovate. That those are the ones we really are culturally aligned with. And that's when the work's. at at its best so i'd say yeah reach out get in contact um and if anyone's looking i know there's a lot of um, layoffs and different things happening as well we're we're, um, progressively hiring over the next um, 12 months so i'd say also from from a, a career opportunity anyone that's looking to put their career in motion with another successful startup to definitely reach out as well
1: excellent well, thank you so much for chatting with us today, Josh. It's been really fascinating. I think I'm going to go and look up some of your old surfing movies now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, nice. And, yeah, thank you for being on Hard Mode.
0: Thanks so much, Naga. I really appreciate it. It's great talking to you.
2: That was Hard Mode with Cardalux founder and CEO Joshua Williams in conversation with Tractor Ventures entrepreneur and residence, Noga Edelstein. You can find Cardalux online at cardalux.com and on Twitter at cardalux. Thanks a lot for joining us.